0: Chapter 21 is where we are today, getting into the second half of the chapter. Last week, looking at the first half, uh, we saw Jesus in the triumphant entry, and we spent a lot of time talking about what an important day that was. It wasn't just another Passover season that was coming. This day of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the full of a donkey had been prophesied about 500 years before. That very day, and we're not going to get into all that again, but if you look at Daniel chapter 9, uh, uh, a, a sequence of events is given to Daniel along with the timing that the Messiah would be revealed to Israel. And it turns out if you do all the math, it's that day. Isaiah chapter 62 said that he would ride in, the Messiah would arrive lowly on the foal of a donkey bringing salvation. And Jesus did just that. But there was still some some contrast to what was going on. We had the group, the the crowd that was there shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Uh, Hosanna means save now or bring salvation. And calling him the son of David was to refer to him as the Messiah. Uh, So it seems like the crowd got it. But the thing is, they didn't get it. And that's why uh, we're told in other Gospels that Jesus wept at that time because they were still looking for a political savior they were still looking for a military messiah that would overthrow Rome that would that would lead them to rule the world and that is not why he was there he came to bring salvation and to bring peace now, after that, Jesus goes in and he clears the temple. And we talked about the corruption of the leaders and all of the ways that they were scamming the people for money at that time. And that Jesus just sets up shop in the temple. And it's when he refers to it as, My house shall be called the house of prayer. And he just sits down and begins to teach and heal the sick. And, and then after that, he goes out, goes to Bethany. Next day, he's coming back. And that's where we're going to pick up as we uh, finish up the chapters. He's actually on his way back to the temple. But the last thing we looked at is this weird event of him cursing this fig tree. It's one of the only two uh, destructive miracles Jesus did. The first was the, the, the herd of pigs that went down and drowned. And then, then this fig tree where he spoke, let fruit never be found on you again, and the the tree withered and died. And we talked about that this whole thing is a picture. Some would say it's a picture of Israel, and I have a problem with that because uh, there's such a finality to what he said. No fruit grow on you ever again. And Israel will bear fruit again. It's not now, but it will. But as far as the temple and temple worship, that would never bear fruit again, ever. It was done. The old things of the old covenant had served their purpose and therefore the temple and its worship would, would be forever stopped. Part two, Jesus is returning to the temple, but now the religious leaders are all ready for him. Right? They've been planning them and plotting all night. Jesus is coming back and so they're going to trap him in his words and we're going to see how well that works for them. So let's pray one more time and we'll get into the rest of the chapter. God, thank you. Thank you for just the power of your word, and uh, we pray, as always, that you would have your perfect way in us today, that you would speak your word to our hearts and that it would find the good soil, that it would cause us to be changed, that it would cause us to be closer to you. And we just, again, give you full reign in this place. Have your way. Teach us your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to be starting in verse verse 23. Of chapter twenty one. Says now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching, and said, "By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority?" But Jesus answered and said to them, "I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things: the baptism of John." Where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, and he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for they count John as a prophet. And so they answered and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first, and he said, Son, go today and work in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will. Excuse me, he said, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it and went. And then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of their father? And they said to him, The first. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe in him. Um, remember again, the day before, Jesus was overturning tables in the temple. So it, I think sometimes we can lose track of what's the timeline, right? We've had a week in between that we've talked about it, and we're like, oh, this is a long time later. Next day, right? So Jesus just stirred things up, caused a lot of trouble uh, there in the temple. And of course, the leaders did not like their sin being pointed out. And that's really what he was doing, right? They were the ones behind all of that corruption. And, And so now they've prepared for him. And once again, he shows up in the temple to just set up shop. Right? He arrives, and he instantly begins to teach, and they interrupt him with the question, by what authority do you do these things, and who gave you this authority? Now again, why, who gives you the authority to do these things? They're not talking about him teaching. They're talking about him overturning tables. They're talking about him correcting them. Who are you to tell us that we're wrong is basically the question. But it isn't just that. See, it's also a trap that they are attempting to set for him. Because if Jesus tells them, I do this under my own authority because I'm the Messiah, and I have received that authority from my Father in heaven. Now, those things are absolutely true. And if Jesus were to say them, they would have grounds to accuse him of blasphemy. So really, if he says that the truth, they can trap him. And if he says anything but that, they can dismiss him. Well, you're nobody. You're not the Messiah. You're not a leader. You're not even a rabbi as part as part of their group. And so it seems like they're trying to trap him into a corner. And I love this. Again, I just, I always marvel at the way Jesus handles things. You know, if you. We've all been in those situations where we know no matter what we say, we're gonna get trapped in our words, right? Whether that's a personal conflict or there's, they just cornered you and you're like, oh gosh, this is a, a lose lose situation, right? Guys understand that, right? When the wife goes, have I ever looked worse? What do I, uh, no, yes, no, yes, there's no way to win, right? And whenever they do this to Jesus, they try and trap him in his words, he just like dismantles the whole thing, just with a few sentences, sometimes not even that. And here again, it's the same thing. When they think they've set this trap for him, and he says, okay, I will answer you if you answer my question. And he's done this before. This was a pretty common thing, certainly in their culture, for it's an exchange of truth and that's the idea so he's not just looking for any answer the the underlying message is if you answer my question honestly i will answer your question honestly and so he asked them about john the baptist and again the way he puts it is very very clear but basically he's just saying is was john's calling from heaven or not was John a prophet sent by God to Israel, or was he just some crazy dude out by the river? It's one or the other. You, you can't have both. You can't be partially on and partially off. So which is it? Now, these guys, they already know their answer, but they don't want to say it because, well, even as they discuss it amongst themselves, they realize what's going to happen. If they say, oh, well, yeah, we think it was from heaven, then... Why didn't you believe him? Well, no, he was nobody. Well, then the people will be be mad at us. And so a lot is being revealed about their heart. First of all, they they fear the people. And so they're they're cowards to speak what they think is the truth. And if they say that he was from God, then they're going to reveal that they're hypocrites. They knew who he was, but they didn't want him getting in their way. And so their answer is, we don't know. Which is a lie. Of course they they knew what their answer was. But again, their answer reveals that they try and kind of choose this like political type answer. Oh well, we don't want to get trapped in our words, so we'll say something that kind of just appeases. Well, we don't know. Which really just proves they're political cowards, right? We don't know. And because their answer was not honest, then Jesus says, Then I'm not going to answer you either. If you won't answer me honestly, then the contract's broken and I don't need to answer you honestly either. Um, Now, what their their answer should have been, because I I started thinking about that. What could they have said? Were they completely trapped with only one or the other as as an answer? The real answer that they, they should have had was, John was sent by God, but we were too proud to hear him, and we were too proud to repent. That is the right answer. And for so many, and I've, we've all been in that place, before we came to Christ, we had people share the gospel with us. And we had people tell us about Jesus. And we went, nope, nope. And we're in that same place. Maybe we weren't the self-righteous, but we were still lost. And, and we had to be brought to the point of the message that I've rejected for so long is Right and I've been too proud to hear it, right? It's really the answer of brokenness. It's, it's the answer of repentance, and that there's nothing wrong with the message. I may not have liked the messenger, but there's nothing wrong with the message itself, and I've just been too proud to hear it. Um, we just have this tendency that even when we know we're wrong, we just dig in our heels all the more right we we see that in our own lives we see it in the political world where you know there is so much proof to say you are wrong and they just double down all the more right and it's just part of our sin nature it's it's what we tend to do yes i know i'm wrong but i can't admit it now so i'm just gonna all the more say how right i am jesus has come to to save us from that and unfortunately, these, uh, these religious leaders who should know these things are such a great example of the hardened heart so filled with pride that they just can't hear anything but their own opinion. And so Jesus tells them this parable um, of a man who had two sons. Sends them both out to work. And there's, a couple de- there's some details that are important here, because I think they very clearly translate to the Pharisees for sure, but I think they transfer to our life as well. Um, first of all, he didn't, the father didn't call both sons to go out and work around the breakfast table, where he just tells them, hey, boys, go out and work today. He calls them individually. They each have an individual calling from their father to serve, And they have to respond individually. It's not a group uh, choice, right? They are held accountable individually for their response. And they are called to work. It's not called to play. It's not called to vacation. It's not called to rest. It's work. Go work in my vineyard. Now... Again, that's important because sometimes as we think about ministry or we think about serving or even sharing, we're kind of looking for doing it in a comfortable way, doing it where it's not a challenge, doing it where I can do it within my comfort zone, and then I'll do ministry from here. It's work, it's always out of the comfort zone, it's always difficult. Right? And I think life on the farm is a great example of it. What he's calling them to do is work in his vineyard, and, and work on the farm is work. <laughs> it's long-term work. It's, it's months and months of preparing the ground and planting and or tilling and then planting and watering and all these things, all with the harvest that's far off in the future in mind. There is no immediate reward in farming. None. <laughs> you don't go out and go, man, picking rocks that I have a field was awesome. I loved it. You do all of that to go, the harvest is coming and I have to prepare for it. And it's hard labor, right? And so he calls them to his field to work. The other thing that, about it is that uh, it's immediate. This isn't go someday, eventually. Hey, boys, when it's convenient for you, I'd like you to go work in the vineyard. It's today. Today's the day to work in the vineyard. Again, that harvest is, is a long ways away, especially for a vineyard. You know, a thing like a vineyard or an orchard, it's years before you'll ever see fruit from it. And even then, it'll be years before it's productive. Years after you see fruit. So long ways off. But the call was for them to work the land now. Now, again, this is super common. Much more common in in Jesus' day than it is in ours, where the family business, whatever it might be, if it was a vineyard, it was the family business. The kids worked on it. It was just understood that you worked your father's land. But it was also understood that your father's land is your inheritance. There there was an investment to it. You weren't just a paid employee. You weren't just somebody short-term that was going to be there. You were pouring your life into the land that would one day be yours and then your children's. There was an inheritance to all of these things. So it's a a great picture. Now, we've talked about before that the the vineyard is over and over again a picture of Israel, and even more specific than that is Jerusalem. And, And so as Jesus is saying this parable he asked this very simple but profound question of these two boys that were asked to go out and work which of the two did the will of his father and they said to him well the first remember the first said no i won't go but then later on he did the other one said oh absolutely dad sure i'm your best you know you can count on me and he didn't go who did his will well the one that that said first no and, and then changed his mind and went Lots of people speak of righteousness, talk about the things of God, and like to discuss things in a very religiosity kind of way, talk about being a very spiritual person. It's very popular in our society now to talk about being very spiritual and, and even the things of righteousness. And, but we can't just be people that speak the right words. We need to be people that do what God has called us to do. We all have the call upon our life to go work his vineyard. Even though we might not see the harvest for a long time, we are still called to do it. And so often, yeah, yeah, I'll get to that. I'll get to it later. And maybe we never do. But having that heart of nope, I know it's hard work. I'm going to enter in And Jesus points this out, and again, we need to understand how hard this must have been for these people to hear, the religious leaders to hear, because he tells them that tax collectors and harlots will enter the kingdom of heaven before you. Well, they are entering. So he's comparing them going, look, they're the first kid that said, no, I won't go. And they went and did whatever they wanted. But now they've heard the words of John the Baptist. They've heard the call to repentance. And they've heard John the Baptist point to Jesus and go, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, and they are entering the kingdom of heaven. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders are the ones that have talked and talked all about righteousness and goodness and and been so quick to point out the sins of other people when in fact... They said that they are the ones who are working the field. Oh, I will go, absolutely. I do work the vineyard for my father. But the truth is, they were not. Then there was the sinners entering before. In verse 32, Jesus really proves his point again by saying, Look, you heard the preaching of John the Baptist but you did not believe. You saw the testimony, you you heard the testimony of the people coming to the river and repenting, and you saw the fruit of John's ministry. And even after you saw all that, you still would not relent. He's saying you're still just digging in your heels, you're doubling down on your mistakes and refusing to repent. You would not relent and believe. You would not humble yourself, and as a result, all these others are entering the kingdom before you again that was huge for these religious leaders to to hear that sinners and tax collectors and harlots and carpenters and fishermen were getting into the kingdom of heaven before them it must have just how dare you these were the religious elite that jesus is speaking to he's not pulling any punches with them anymore verse 33 he continues it says here another parable there was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and then he leased it to the vine dressers and went to a far country now when vintage time drew near he sent to his servant, sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants and beat one and killed one and stoned another. And again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. And then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, "They will respect my son." But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him, cast him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease the vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. Jesus tells this uh, parable, again, to the religious leaders as who he's focused on here, of this landowner and uh, who planted a vineyard. Now, this is something these guys would have been absolutely aware of. Again, all the parables Jesus tells are things that everybody commonly understood. But these guys understood business. They understood buying land, investing, doing all this stuff. And so as he speaks about this, to them they're seeing everything from the landowner's point of view because that's usually them. And so the idea of all this, again, it's a great picture that Jesus paints. These guys knew that the landowner had done the work. He had put in the wine press, he built the tower, he put the hedge around it, he'd done all these things, and the only thing left for the uh, people renting or leasing the land was to move in. Right? Huge amount of work. And knowing that also would put a huge amount of weight upon them, the leasers of the land, to render back to the owner what was due him, right? Now, the landowner, of course, is God the Father. The vineyard, as I said before, Israel, or specifically Jerusalem. And the vine dressers, um, well, they're the religious leaders. But They don't understand where they fit in this parable. And again, it's pretty clear that up until the very end, they think they're the landowners. Now, from their perspective or the perspective of the landowner, they they see this huge disrespect of the people who have leased the land. How dare they? And he, I, I don't know, As again, as I picture it, I picture these guys and you know, all their robes and everything, but just getting more and more intense, just their jaw getting tighter as they hear this parable and this story and consider what that would mean and how disrespectful it would be for these people that are simply the ones leasing the land to treat his servants this way and eventually to treat his son this way. That they took in verse thirty-five it says that the vine dressers took his servants. And they beat one, and they killed one, they stoned another. And again, I just picture their blood starting to boil of how ungrateful and wicked these people are. Um, and then Jesus just start, keeps like adding to it, right? He's just like one more element that would just drive them crazy. He's just like pushing all of their buttons so they would see the injustice of all of this. Um, and the next one is is that the owner sends his son. Now, as much as these guys understood land, investment, property, and how business dealings went, beyond all of that, in, in their culture, they held this, their sons with such high regard. And it's, again, something we don't quite understand because it doesn't have the same meaning for us, right? I mean, the, somebody's pregnant, and they're like, well, I don't care if it's a boy or a girl as long as it's healthy, and that's great, right? That's, that's good, But in their day, the idea of a son meant that their genealogy was going to be carried on, that their line would would continue, that the inheritance that had been passed to them would pass to another. And, And so it was hugely important. And not only did they hold sons in high regard, but if you only had one son, it was like considered the greatest treasure you had. So the idea that the landowner would send his son, and that they would, would treat him like this. Again, these guys would have just been like speechless with anger at the, at the very idea of this. Now, again, he continues. And he shows the idea that the people renting the land, the leasers of the land, are crazy in, in what their plan is. It doesn't make any sense at all when they say in verse 36... This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. It was impossible to seize somebody's inheritance. So the very plan that they have simply can't be done. There's no way it could ever be accomplished. In Israel, the land that was given to your family would continue in your family line. It could be leased out, but it could never be sold. It would always be your inheritance in the land. And the idea that these people could somehow come in and steal... His inheritance is ridiculous. And there's no way it can happen. But yet again, he's telling this to the people who are planning to have Jesus killed. That they plan to take the son out of the vineyard, outside the city, and have him put to death. That they might inherit or continue to have power there in Jerusalem. And this, this parable fits so perfectly with what they're doing. Now, again, they don't see that at this point. And you see that this strikes such a deep chord in them. When Jesus asked the question in verse 40, what will the vine, what will the landowner do to these vine dressers, <laughs> right? Again, you can just kind of picture these guys getting worked up as he's telling the story. Oh, how dare they? Oh, my God. His son? there They did what, you know? And he's like, and what's the landowner going to do? He is going to destroy them miserably. And he is going to give the vineyard to those who will render to him what is his. Right? You can just hear the indignation in their voice. You can hear the justice that these, people, that this, these vine dressers deserve punishment. Amazing how they can see the sin of others, but not see it in themselves at all. Again, that's part of our fallen nature. So good at seeing what other people are doing wrong. And I think mean, that's always been a, a huge thing that I've, I had it, I've had it happen many times in my life where I'm upset with somebody about maybe a personality trait or character or something they did. And the Lord just reminds me, you want to know why you recognize that? Oh, (laughs) because I do that too. Because it's something in me, otherwise I wouldn't recognize that at all. And these guys, in the same way, they don't see it in themselves, but they see how evil this is. And they're so angry about it, so furious about what must be done or what should be done to bring justice about And the thing is, they're absolutely right. Their their assertion of the whole situation, of this whole parable, they are correct in what justice will be. They just don't realize they're speaking it upon themselves. And then Jesus reveals the rest of the meaning. In verse 42, it says, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures... The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But whomever it falls upon, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this par- these parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. Now, the stone which the builders rejected, it almost sounds like Jesus is like changing subjects here, but he's not at all. He's really revealing who he is. And this is a story, it's mentioned in Psalms, and that's what Jesus quotes from here, but the story itself is, is not written down for us in the Bible. During the construction of the Temple of Solomon, God had given instruction that no tools were to be used on the temple site. No hammers, no chisels, no nothing. It ought to be done away in the quarry, and then the stones would be moved on site. And so early on in the construction, this stone arrives, and it's got all these weird angles, and and it just doesn't seem to fit anywhere, and they looked at all the different stones that they had listed that were supposed to arrive, and it wasn't on there, and they rolled it down the Temple Mount and down the hill and just thought it was a mistake. And so years go by. And the temple was reaching completion, and they called to the quarry saying, we need the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone that all things get joined together at. And they said, we sent that to you years ago. And they they looked, and they couldn't find it until finally they went down the hill, and there in the rubbish pile of all the other stones that had been rejected is the chief cornerstone. And they realized this is the Lord's doing. This means something. This is important. And that's why the psalmist recorded it. So Jesus is going, that's me. I'm the stone that you builders have rejected. The one that all things make sense. All things fit together. Without me, it can't stand. I'm the son that the vine dressers Rejected and planned to kill. The chief cornerstone, the beloved only son, and they're the ones that have gotten it all wrong. And again, he says in verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of heaven will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. It was their own thing, that the vineyard would be taken away from those people and given to those who will do things right, do things justly, do things honoring the landowner. He says, that's exactly what's going to happen. It's all being taken from you right now. It's given to fishermen, tax collectors, and harlots, and not far from here, it will be given to the Gentiles, us. You know, and again, Jesus doesn't mention that, probably because it would have started a riot or something. It's like, and if you think that's bad, tax collectors and harlots, I'm talking about the Gentiles too. <laughs> People freak out. There's still a chance, even at this point, for the religious leaders to repent. And, and as Jesus has described the cornerstone that has been, the chief cornerstone that has been rejected, he again brings in this same idea and, and it actually points to a couple other scriptures as well. In verse 44, And whomever falls on this stone will be broken, but whoever it falls on, it will grind him to powder. Man, falling on Jesus, falling on the chief cornerstone is painful. It, it requires us to admit we're wrong. It requires us to to admit we've been going in the wrong direction. Wherever we thought we were going, we were wrong. And as we fall on Jesus Christ, we go, I'm broken before you. But no matter how painful that might be, it is not as painful as the alternative, which is to face God's judgment. To whomever the stone falls upon, they will be ground to powder, And be lost forever. This is, again, I believe Jesus speaking to the Pharisees going, Guys, it is not too late for you. You can fall upon this stone, referring to himself, and be broken. Or, I will fall upon you and you will be lost. Unfortunately, they would not hear it. Dig in their heels all the more, double down all the more, and as he tells them this, they realize, wait a second, he's talking about us. (laughs) You know, again, you kind of picture like the light bulb moment of like, what? We're the vine dressers? Is that what you're saying? We're the son that didn't obey? You're talking about us? And instead of going, wait a second, there's some truth to that. They're like, get him. That's their response, is to lay hands on him, to seize him, to arrest him. But because they feared the people, they would not. Man. You know, for us, again, I think there's a lot of things in here that apply. But for us to continually be the people, falling on the stone, Jesus Christ, falling on the cornerstone, being broken again and again. Lord, use me however you want. I want to be usable in your hands. I want to be effective in your kingdom. I don't want to build a kingdom for myself. I want to build yours. And it requires this ongoing brokenness before the Lord. I mean, we're saved. We belong to him. But man, we want to be effective for his kingdom. We want to be those working in the vineyard, doing the work that he has called us to do, looking for the harvest, which I believe is not that far in the future. I think it's right now. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you so much for your calling upon each and every one of our lives. Lord, that you have a plan, you have a direction, you have something you want us specifically to be a part of and doing, and Lord, we want to do it faithfully. God, have your way in us, and continue to just lead us day by day that these things would apply to our lives this week and give us opportunity to share your love with the people we're around. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.